0: Hi, I'm James. And I'm Anthony.
1: And this is Words and Numbers presented by FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education.
0: This week's episode of Words and Numbers is sponsored by 3on6.com. Dr. Randy Roberts invented the 3on6 procedure as a new way to replace a full set of teeth using dental implants and bridges. Dr. Roberts wanted to come up with an effective and affordable alternative to uncomfortable dentures and something that was much less expensive than traditional dental implants, which can run as high
1: as $80,000. With Dr. Roberts' three-on-six procedure, you'll end up with teeth that are comfortable, that look natural, that you can clean yourself, need never be removed. This is really good stuff, and it's at a fraction of what traditional dental implants will cost you. You can find a provider and a free consultation by visiting 3on6.com. That's the number three, the word on, and the number six, 3on6.com. You'll get a free scan of your mouth to determine whether you qualify, and you'll even get some financing information. So go
0: on over to 3on6.com to learn more about this revolutionary procedure and to
1: find a provider near you. Uh, Every week it's the same. Every week it's the same. (laughs) What's new and exciting in your world this week, Ant? One of our listeners,
0: Dennis Foster, brought to our attention the matter of Stephen Shu of Michigan State University. Dr. Shu earned a PhD in physics from Berkeley and was, until recently, vice president for research at Michigan State. Dr. Shu has come under fire from Michigan's Graduate Employees Union for sharing research that failed to find evidence that police are more likely to shoot African Americans than whites or Hispanics. There are several failures here. The first is that this isn't Dr. Shu's research. Psychologists from the University of Maryland and Michigan State conducted the research and published it in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Dr. Shu simply shared the article on social media. Second, the people of Michigan's Graduate Employees Union appear not to understand how statistics work. The way statistical analysis works is that the researcher proposes a hypothesis. For example, police are equally likely to shoot African Americans as whites. Then the researcher looks for evidence to refute the hypothesis. If the data refute the hypothesis, the researcher says, no, my hypothesis is incorrect. The data show that police are more likely to shoot African Americans than whites. But If the data don't refute the hypothesis, the researcher concludes that the data reveal nothing. That doesn't mean that the hypothesis that police are as likely to shoot African Americans as whites is correct. It means the data provide no conclusion to the question. It's like you wanting to test the hypothesis, the dog is outside. From your chair, you look around the room, you see no dog. The best you can say is, I cannot refute the hypothesis that the dog is outside. That doesn't mean the dog is actually outside. It simply means that you have no evidence that it isn't. The dog could be upstairs in the basement or climbing on the kitchen counters. Your observation from your chair doesn't tell you the dog is outside. It tells you pretty much nothing. And so too here, the Graduate Employees Union confused the failure to refute a hypothesis for affirmation of the hypothesis, and so claim that the research results say something that they don't. Third, Forcing Dr. Hsu out of his job for sharing research results that Graduate Employees Union first misunderstands, then dislikes what it misunderstands, sends a chill throughout academia. Researchers must be free to ask questions and communicate results. This is how we push back ignorance. To suppress research because we disagree with its conclusions, or worse, because we disagree with what we erroneously perceive its conclusions to be, is to shut down all research because researchers can't be sure what results the mob will misinterpret and turn on next. Shut down enough researchers like this, and we transform academia into a huge rubber stamp that simply puts window dressing on whatever preconceptions the masses hold. And that doesn't look anything like science, but it does start to look a lot like religion.
1: Some of us think that that's already happened.
0: I think higher education in certain areas has been pushing this direction for some decades. I'm very surprised to see it in STEM disciplines.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And where it goes next, anybody's guess, but this is a disconcerting chapter in this story. On my side, I've got something I can't really quite decide what I think about yet, but the Supreme Court decided very recently that faithless electors in the Electoral College can be punished by the states from which they come. I didn't see that. All right, so for
0: our listeners, a faithless elector is one who votes the opposite way of the popular
1: vote in the state. Not necessarily the opposite way, just a different way. A different way, sure. Right, not too long ago, one faithless elector voted for Lloyd Benson to become president. In the last go-around, the Trump-Clinton election, I think we had on the order of 10 or so faithless electors. Three of them voted for Colin Powell because there's nothing in place until right this second that a faithless elector might be punished. And now there is. It doesn't seem to say that they have to vote the way that they're charged, but it does say that after the fact, they can be punished. And I'm going to have to read into this a little more because I suspect what really happens is they're going after that first problem, the faithless elector simply. But interestingly, it was a nine to nothing Supreme Court decision. Oh, wow. That's impressive. So you've got wholesale agreement on the part of the Supreme Court justices, which doesn't happen that often, at least not in high profile cases. And with the election coming up, the Electoral College is again under the microscope and people are getting ready to be agitated about whatever it does. Well, all of a sudden, it seems they can't do as much as they once could. And you and I wrote an article during the last election sequence about the Electoral College. You and I actually, I think tongue-in-cheek, called on the Electoral College to elect somebody other than Donald Trump, right? That you guys can do whatever you want, now go do it. And like I said, a bit tongue-in-cheek on our part, nonetheless, that's never going to happen now. I'm really interested
0: now to read what the Supreme Court had to say. Because my understanding is the Electoral College was designed to be at the presidential electoral level, like the House or the Senate is at the level of laws, that you elect these people and they decide who's going to be president.
1: Yeah, more or less, right? There's a lot more to it that we can't really get into here. But one of the apparent features of the Electoral College is now off the table. And that's interesting. I'll throw a couple of stories in the show notes, and you can read up on it at your leisure. We'll certainly get back to this before the election happens. Which brings us, of course, Ant, to the foolishness of the week. Got any guesses? <laughs> no. <laughs> it could be none other than Kanye West. Oh, that's right. He's wants who, to be president. The, who, over the weekend, declared his candidacy for the United States presidency. Looking back on it, he did say he was going to run back in 2016. He said he was going to run in 2020. So I guess he's making good on that promise. But here's the thing. People haven't noticed this yet. Kanye has an entire line of merchandise that flies under the banner Vision 2020. Kanye is trying to sell shirts and sweatshirts and sneakers and this kind of thing and drummed up a whole bunch of press the minute he went live with that line of products.
0: How funny, he's trying to sell merchandise. What if he ends up being elected president kind of as a side deal?
1: (laughs) I suspect that Kanye is blissfully unaware of the difficulty in getting on the ballot in 50 states. Not saying he is, but I suspect he is very unaware of just how much work this takes. For decades,
0: we've been electing people who are qualified. Since the last election, at least, we seem to be going the other direction.
1: Let's elect some people who are unqualified, see if they can do a better job. I'm going to take a little bit of issue with you there, and I think we've elected boneheads for generations, not years. But you can know that Kanye's push to become president is really a push to sell a lot of merchandise. We'll see how well that works as we walk around outside in our daily lives and we check out how many Kanye t-shirts are out there in the masses. Rob
0: McDonald is professor of history at West Point and author of Confounding Father, Thomas Jefferson's image in his own time. He joins us this week to discuss his recently released book, The American Revolution, Core Documents. Professor McDonald has asked that we emphasize that his views are his own and do not represent those of the United States Military Academy. This is the second of a two-part series of
1: interviews with Professor McDonald. Rob, welcome back to Words and Numbers. I want to throw something on the table here, because you left us off talking about the seven years of French and Indian War and the astonishing war debt that Great Britain ended up with. And there was an astonishing war debt. So the British, not surprisingly, I think, and maybe even reasonably said, well, we've got those colonies in North America, they should really pay for their own upkeep. We're not looking to turn a profit here, but they should at least be self-sustaining. That is not a remarkable thing to say. I think that's a very rational thing to say. If these are British colonies, hey, maybe they should be a break-even proposition at worst. And the Sugar Act is a curious animal, because all of a sudden, here come the British and they say, we're going to tax sugar, and the colonists lose their minds. But the British already taxed sugar by virtue of the Navigation Act of 1733, and the Sugar Act from
2: somewhat 40 years later is a tax decrease. It's a tax decrease, but they're really going to make them pay it this time. Yeah, this time we <laughs> <it>. <laughs> But you're absolutely right. Members of parliament are not as depicted. Some of your listeners of a certain age will remember Schoolhouse Rock. And there was a great Schoolhouse Rock segment called No More Kings, where George III is portrayed as this evil man sitting on a throne eating turkey drumsticks, cackling um, about how he was going <laughs> to rob Americans of their rights. The British thought that they were the good guys. And- In some ways, they were the good guys. Here's a statistic that will knock your socks off. In 1763, Great Britain collected in revenue from its North American colonies, 1,800 pounds. Now, (laughs) but don't laugh, right? Because there's inflation and everything. (laughs) There's not that much inflation, right? let Let me give you a number to compare that with. All right. So in 1763, they collect 1,800 pounds in terms of revenue. In 1763, they spend on the American colonies 384,000 pounds. So there is a huge chasm between what they get from the colonies and what they spend on the colonies. And of course, the first thing that the British try to do after this expensive war, the French and Indian War, is they try to prevent another expensive war. The French, of course, have been vacated from the North American continent as a result of the French and Indian War, at least French military forces have, but the Native American nations remain. And so they essentially wanna create conditions where there can be a lasting peace between the Native Americans and the British colonists. And so in 1763, they issue what they call the proclamation line, which is this invisible line along the crest of the Appalachian Mountains that the colonists can't cross land to the west of the Appalachians is supposed to be reserved for Native Americans. And I think the idea is good fences make good neighbors. And if the Indians stay in the west and the colonists stay in the east, there won't be tension, there won't be friction, there won't be a future expensive war. But that's very alienating to the American colonists, because of course, it wasn't just redcoats who were fighting in the French and Indian War, a lot of provincial colonial forces were. They had lost brothers, they had lost husbands, they had lost sons, they had lost limbs fighting against the French and the Indians. And now here there was their government, the British government, siding with their former enemies. So that really gave them some indigestion. And it's not just the Sugar Act. It's not just the proclamation line of 1763. It's not just the Stamp Act, which they think violates their property rights because They had no representatives in parliament. And I know we live in morally relativistic times, but what do you call it when somebody reaches into your pocket and takes your money without asking? That's theft. That's theft. That's stealing, (laughs) right? And the British government is supposed to be protecting their property rights. That's one of the most essential, basic functions of government. And yet parliament without even asking is going to be taking their money.
1: And here's the curiosity, right? At the same time, Ireland is a conquered land, not a settled one, and Ireland is permitted its own representative body. They don't answer to parliament, they answer to the king. Here, where the United States, the soon-to-be United States, was a settled but not conquered area, there is no representation. So the net result is you're better off being conquered by the British than retaining your British citizenship as you move across the Atlantic Ocean. Nothing's rational if that's correct.
0: But along those lines, as I'm reading these core documents, yes, there's complaints about the risk of assistance, complaints about the taxation, the Stamp Act, and whatnot. But it seems that every time there's a complaint like that, it's not about the thing itself. It's about the thing coupled with the lack of representation. So it wasn't the Stamp Act. It was the Stamp Act plus lack of representation, As I'm reading that, it raises a question in my mind, suppose that Parliament had granted the colonists' representation, and yet, even with that representation, everything played out the way it did. You still have the Stamp Act, you still have the writs of Assistance, the whole business. Do you have a revolution then?
2: I don't know that the British could have, in a practical, functioning manner, granted any sort of representation that we would have considered meaningful. Beginning with the House of Burgesses in Virginia in 1619, all of these colonies had their own miniature parliaments. They all had their own legislatures that were elected by the people where they had actual representation. If the British had offered actual representation to the American colonies, if it had been anything close to proportional, first of all, it's impossible to imagine the British granting such a thing because the American population is doubling every 20 years. And Ben Franklin actually did the math and he calculated that at some point in the first half of the 19th century, Americans would outnumber their cousins on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. So they would become a colony of us in a sense. Mm. So I can't imagine that the British would have done it, but even if they had tried, think about the amount of time that it took to cross the Atlantic Ocean. I mean, it would be like two months to go back and forth at the speediest. And then for Americans, to have the opportunity to provide input to the representatives in parliament. I mean, it would have completely thrown sand into the gears of British government. It's impossible to imagine that Britain ever would have provided it. And even if Britain had provided it, it's impossible to imagine that Americans would ever be able to accept it as being legitimate.
0: So the revolution in the end was a function of the speed of transportation. Well, quite possibly. You just couldn't move fast enough. Quite possibly. To achieve but, representation.
2: But the other thing is that in some ways, this was an issue of colonial autonomy. Now, the colonists, they believed that essentially on all domestic concerns, they had the right to govern for themselves. You know, the Virginia House of Burgesses had the right to govern the Virginians who elected them. People in the Massachusetts legislature had the right to govern the people of Massachusetts who had voted them in. They acknowledged that Parliament had the right to make decisions for the empire, and that it had the right to control international trade. But they thought that its authority essentially ended at their colony's border or at American shores. And yet when the Stamp Act is repealed in 1766, just a year after it was passed, and incidentally, Britain raised approximately zero pounds in revenue, as a result of the Stamp Act, because American resistance was so thoroughgoing and they boycotted British goods, anything that bore the stamp. And they essentially made it so that if you agreed to be a stamp tax collector, no one in your community would speak with you or work with you or sell you anything or buy anything from you. So they really defeated this measure. But as soon as Parliament repealed the Stamp Act, it passed another statement called the Declaratory Act. And in the Declaratory Act, Parliament insisted that it had the right to legislate for the colonies in all cases whatsoever. So that was a real sticking point.
1: And I think you can make a very strong case that from that point forward, from the day the ink dried on the Declaratory Act, revolution was unavoidable.
2: One side had to blink. If it were to be avoided, and neither side did. How do you look at that? I mean,
1: with everything we've said as prologue, and we've said a lot, so far we've covered a lot of material in a very short period of time but with all of that as prologue how are we to understand in your opinion what we're going through right now relative to the american revolution are we getting to a revolutionary time or is it just simply something else
2: i mean in some ways james that's a question that i don't feel qualified to answer i'm I'm a historian i look at the past the present i have no special expertise but here's the weird part, right? If I go to the sociologists, they'll have absolutely no appreciation
1: of the past, right? They will not know the history. Yeah so too with my own discipline in no small part, the political scientists. So I think we ought to be consulting historians a whole lot more than we do. I'm gonna push you really hard to say something. Well, James,
2: you know, I listen to your show all the time and I know what a sweet talker you are. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's (laughs) me. But but I don't know that I wanna take the bait. You know, one thing that history teaches me is humility. It's so difficult to appreciate all that we don't know. I mean, we think we know a lot and, you know, over time you learn more and more about the past as well as about the present, but I don't know. I mean, when I think about what's going on today, when I think about the national debt and the degree to which it's piling up, I heard your episode recently where you mentioned, I think June 21st was the day that right. we start borrowing, having spent all of the revenue that the government would accumulate for the year, thinking about the expenses and the strain on our civil liberties imposed by decisions made by governments in response to the coronavirus, and thinking about you know, some of the real tragic events that have unfolded as a result of the killing of George Floyd and civil unrest in America, it's a stressful time, I think, for everybody. And yet, a difference that I see is that in the 1760s and the 1770s, there were real principles that people elucidated with clarity and agreed upon to a large degree. And I hate to say this, because generally I'm very optimistic about the future, but it seems as if our discourse these days is not quite as high-minded as it once was. Right. It's more 1968
1: than 1776 in almost every meaningful way. Or
2: maybe 1790s Paris,
1: That's right, because it starts to feel a lot more like the terror Mm -hmm. than anything else. I do cringe at what might be possible, but let's look back for something a lot more uplifting, because you've got, at the very end of your collection, some really interesting material about how things ended up, at least from the perspective of 1760. When we start with Otis and we look forward, well, people had to be very concerned about what was going to transpire. And yet they achieved the impossible. They beat the British, or maybe better to the point, they didn't lose to the British, Mm -hmm. which was really what they had to accomplish, right? They had to drag that war on forever and not lose. They didn't actually have to win. And they didn't lose. And in some meaningful respects, they did win. And this was a real long shot, astronomically long. And then they created their own government. Maybe you could bring us to George Washington and the place that he occupies in this story.
2: In our conversation so far, we've been talking about the period leading up to 1776. But it's worth thinking about, in essence, the second half of this volume and the documents that are contained within it, beginning with 1775, when the British do march troops out of Boston through Lexington to Concord, where their objective is to capture, if they can, John Hancock and Sam Adams, and capture... By all means, weapons that had been stored there by Massachusetts forces, they went for Americans' guns, but Americans had warning. Paul Revere and others really did ride out into the night shouting out that the Redcoats were on their way. And this was the beginning of the war for independence. At first, they didn't know that. They didn't call it that until after July 4th, 1776. But throughout, as soon as George Washington became the commander in chief of the Continental Army in 1775, he very quickly comes to a realization. The realization is this, we could lose this war, but the longer it goes on, the harder it is for the British to win this war. Because this was a war truly for hearts and minds the British army was in a very difficult position. How do you force people to want to be something that they don't want to be? How do you force people to want to be British again? And the more they tried to force people, the more adamant people were in fighting for their independence. And you know, there are a number of documents in this volume that highlight the ways in which British strong-arm tactics during the course of the war for independence backfired. One example is there's this fantastic, I'm just going to tease it so people want to get the book, which is not at all expensive. I think it's selling for $10 up through July 4th and $12 after that fact. But Benjamin Franklin and the Marquis de Lafayette in 1779 were acting on instructions from the Continental Congress to put together a plan for an illustrated children's book about British war atrocities. (laughs) (laughs) I doubt the Newbery Award Committee would think very highly of such an enterprise (laughs) these days. Not much sharing and caring in this plan's illustrated volume. But, I mean, it really gets at the heart of it. The British, when a surgical strike would have done just fine, bombarded a town with all their cannon. There were reports that colonists believed, and that may well have been true, that the British Army was working with Native American allies and paying them by the scalp for American citizens. There were horrible war atrocities where American soldiers who had surrendered to the British were bayoneted in their sleep. Horrible stuff, really horrible stuff for a children's book. But it gets to the crux of George Washington's insight. The longer this war went on, the more the Americans were going to see the British as them and view themselves as us. Washington fought a long war. Finally, he was able to bring it to a conclusion in 1781 when he received intelligence that Lord Cornwallis had moved his army to the Yorktown Peninsula. I'm a civilian who teaches at West Point. I don't take it upon myself to give military advice to my cadets. But one thing I do feel confident saying is never retreat to a peninsula. It's not a good idea. (laughs) And Washington and the French general Rochambeau were able to move their forces to surround Cornwallis. And then the French Navy under Admiral de Gras surrounded him by sea and Cornwallis surrendered. And finally, in 1783, all the details of the peace were worked out in Paris, and the treaty was signed, and George Washington resigned his commission as commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. And a lot of people in all different parts of the world were really doubtful that this would take place. A victorious general giving up power? When had that ever happened before? I mean, it would be almost a singular example of that sort of thing of someone winning a war and then saying, all right, my job is done, I'm going to go back to my farm, I'm going to go back to my family, I'm going to go back to my books to live under my vine and my fig tree. And there was an American portrait painter in London who was painting royal portraits. His name was Benjamin West, and as West later reported, he had a conversation with King George III, and George III asked Benjamin West, is it true these rumors that I hear about George Washington And Benjamin West said, yes, sire, it is said that should he be victorious, his plan is to go back to private life and return to his home. And according to West, the king sort of laughed and said, ha, if he does that, then truly he is the world's greatest man. And that's exactly what George Washington did. I'm easily convinced that that's exactly at that place and at that time what George Washington was.
1: That's all the time we've got this week on Words and Numbers. Be sure to join us next week when we have something even more scintillating than we had this week, although Rob's a tough act to follow. Until then, follow us on Twitter. Handles are in the show notes. Join Words and Numbers Backstage, the Facebook group, where the conversation continues, and... Send us email, wordsandnumberspodcast at gmail.com. We haven't been getting a lot, so now I'm willing to let you have that. (laughs) See, you do like the email, James. No, I, I really don't. Oh, also, join our Patreon. You get all kinds of great bonus material, which Ant and I are going to go record right now. So Ant, until next week, we'll see you later. See you next week, James.